I'm Rebecca Lavoy, and this is You Can't Make This Up. Can't Make This Up is the podcast where we uncover the true stories behind your favorite Netflix documentaries and films. On today's episode, we take a closer look at the Netflix documentary film, The Hatchet-Wielding Hitchhiker. You need an unlikely hero. You need an amazing scenario. And you need someone in distress. And this had all of that. It is fucking gnarly, man. Holy shit. That's like the biggest wave I've ever ridden in my life. Today, we're talking to director Colette Camden. A driver's assault on pedestrians is foiled by the man he picked up hitchhiking, striking him in the head with a hatchet from his backpack. The story of the rescue by a colorful, carefree drifter goes viral. Soon, there are memes, TV appearances, and talk of a reality show for the man simply known as Kai. But those taken with Kai's whirlwind feel-good story overlook the obvious warning signs. Is the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker just a quirky vagabond? Or does a violent person linger beneath the surface? I've yet to see any analysis of anyone in the media saying, boy, did we make a mistake? Did we create uh, this celebrity and monster without doing our homework? And I'm joined by director Colette Camden. Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, Colette. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Good to be you. So what was it about this story uh, that drew you in in the first place? Uh, well, it's amazing, isn't it? I mean, really incredible. It's, um, I think, because uh, there's this incredible thing about a sudden overnight sensation. He comes from nowhere. And the fact that everyone wanted a piece of him. He was just suddenly the most extraordinary thing. And yet you knew within it, partly because I have to confess, I didn't know about the story before. I'd never come across him before. I didn't know about the viral video. But when you see it, he just kind of gives this interview that's an incredible riff. It's sort of charming. It's kind of organic. He's appealing. And yet there's a little hint of something so much darker within it. I look over, the guy's pinned there. Buddy gets out and these two women are trying to help him. He runs up and he grabs one of them, man. Like a guy that big can snap a woman's neck like a pencil stick. So I fucking ran up behind him with a hatchet. Smash, smash, smash. From coming to the story, I have to say, kind of knowing which way it was going to go, you could see that so kind of embedded in it already. But I think it was the fact that it was so unexpected that here you had somebody who was paraded as a hero. And not only did we see within that his quite rapid spiral downhill, but into a descent that was so extraordinary. I mean, three months after that first video, he's up on a murder charge the other side of the States. Yeah. Yeah. Just incredible. I think you just obviously want to go back to the start and see where that all came from. Exactly. And the story does begin in February of 2013 in Fresno, California. And uh, most people listening to this podcast right now have watched your documentary. But can you just remind us what happened on that day in February in 2013? Sure. Well, actually, it started for, I mean, we look at it largely through the reporter's eyes, who's one of the first people on the scene. He goes, he's, he's a sports reporter and he is literally covering for someone else on the news desk. So he's sent to cover a car crash, um, you know, any, any day, any ordinary day. 
Um, and what he finds when he gets there is this kind of strange story about how a guy has apparently driven his car deliberately, it seems, into a bunch of black utility workers on the side of the road and is screaming all these racist comments. And when he gets out, a woman comes over from the street and tries to stop him and to take him off everyone. He then tries to assault her. And the passenger, a hitchhiker, comes around the car and tries to protect this woman by smashing the guy over the head with a hatchet. So the news reporter is just, well, we've got to find this guy. And sees this bushy-haired guy walking over the other side of the road, goes after and just says to him, can you, uh, can you tell me what happened here today? And Kai just unleashes this extraordinary, I think it's about six minutes, of pure kind of rambling, motor-mouth kind of monologue. And it's kind of incredible because... He doesn't just talk about what's gone down, which is a very traumatic event, but he sort of stops and looks directly into the camera. And Before I say anything else, I want to say no matter what you've done, you deserve respect. Even if you make mistakes, you're lovable. And it doesn't matter your look skills or age or size or anything, you're worthwhile. No one could ever take that away from you. Now, And it's so endearing, I think. And people are kind of so drawn to, this is weird, you know. So he's just saved the day. And he's um, rattling off with this message of love and inclusion. And then when, he's, when he gets to the point where he's describing what he did, he does this kind of comedy action and he throws his arm in the end and he goes, I just went smash, smash, smash. It's really extraordinary. So then Jessup gets back that night and just thinks, I can't quite encapsulate what it is about this dude in the minute and a half news package. So he puts it online. Yeah. You know, he says all of these uh, really kind of sweet things mixed in with these on their face kind of violent things, right? And I, I just wondered if he had been somebody else, if he looked different, if he spoke differently, he wouldn't have been viewed the same way because clearly this was an, a violent incident that escalated into a more violent incident, even though the attack was stopped ultimately. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It was there was something quite beguiling and charming about him, wasn't there? He had a kind of really nice smile and a really funny way with words and the way he right. exaggerates the action. As Lisa, one of our contributors, said, you know, he's kind of cute. Um, <laughs> but also, I mean, because he was, you know, an overnight celebrity, because he was famous, immediately people looked at that and ignored everything else. So if you'd come across that incident and it hadn't been reported and you hadn't seen it on the internet and somebody told you, oh, yeah, that's a guy there, he just... He tried to stop this awful um, attack and he smashed this guy with an axe or hatches, you know, as you call it. You would probably be intrigued, but you might walk away fast. But instead it became this, you know, a kind of almost way of sanitising it. And actually what was so strange is that in those early days, even when we were talking to people, it's like no one really questioned, was the guy all right that he hit over the back of the head? Because if you think about hitting someone with a hatchet, and the way he describes it is with full force. You're probably right in thinking he didn't survive that. But that almost got lost while everyone was looking at what a hero he was. Yeah. I'm curious, what is your opinion on Jessup finding Kai, you know, sort of, quote, discovering him in this way, and then passing along all of these media requests? I mean, in many ways, he was acting more like an agent than a yeah. reporter. Was he crossing a line, do you think? Oh, that's an interesting question. Yeah, he's kind of becomes almost like a sort of de facto agent, doesn't he? But I think he does it with such a, he's really honest and he has a sort of sweet side to him. And I think he's always been very clear that he, 
you know, where, where he stands on that, which is he's very kind of protective of Kai, actually. He's really sort of stuck by him through everything in any case. And he wanted to get that secondary sort of, right, who really is Kai? He wanted to get that for himself and his station. And he made no bones about that. But also he had this other thing of wanting to give him something. And, you know, I want wanting to share all these offers with Kai because he, I think, really believed that, well, at the time that, um, you know, this could change your life. You could make millions. You could become a proper star and have your own show and things. And I think, if anything, one of the things that we wanted to be careful with is when we told the story is not to put too much hindsight into that early section because we wanted to sort of feel how it felt to Jessup and the other sort of people from the entertainment industry about what it was they saw in Kai and what they thought they could do with him. Because it's very easy to sort of look back now and think, wow, you know, why didn't you see the signs? But I think at the time they, there was a real positivity about it. So we're trying to see it, trying to get them back in that moment and kind of remember it like that. Right. Uh, and of course, in the real, in real time, though, things did unravel fairly quickly and, you know, in terms of there being some signs that there was some trouble going on. I mean, in um, when the Jimmy Kimmel show thought the prospect of this hatchet-wielding hitchhiker was too good to pass up, they brought him to the Roosevelt Hotel in advance of his appearance. And there were real signs that Kai might be either trouble or in trouble as soon as they get to the Roosevelt Hotel, right? Yeah, completely. I mean, that's it's farcical, that whole scene, really, isn't it? I mean, it's like a kind of babysitting job where they're all handing him over to each other and I mean I think Brad's hilarious when he's talking about how Lisa kind of literally goes to valet the car and says can you just look after and keep your eye on him for five minutes and he's just Lisa comes back around the corner and I could see her and she looks at me and she stops Kai has his pants pulled down and he's urinating on Julio Iglesias' star directly in front of this hotel and I was like you to keep an eye on him. And her face was like, I was just with this guy for 26 hours. You couldn't do five minutes? Just extraordinary. And I think that they they really did start to worry at that point um, because, you know, like Lisa said, it's like, are we okay here? You know, but there's something probably about the fact that they were all sort of in it together, I guess, but much like the way everyone that was looking at Kai on the internet is sort of helped along by his kind of collective, it's all okay-ness about right. it all, aren't they? It's not like just one person dealing with Kai. You know, you're, you're handling someone that everyone is very supportive of and thinks is wonderful. I think they can be forgiven for sort of seeing slightly beyond their fears, thinking, no, it'll be fine, it'll be fine, and trying to sort of patch through that a bit. Because I think if, you know, if a lot of us were put in that situation, you might also be thinking, okay, this is a bit worrying, but... But still, he's the prized treasure that we have to get to the show on time. I think there was pressure on them. Yeah, that's actually what I was going to ask you about, because ultimately they do get him on the Jimmy Kimmel show. Mm. And the appearance is bizarre. And it's <laughs> such an interesting scene because, you know, there's talk about how professional and well Jimmy Kimmel handles it, which, to be fair, he does. I mean, mm. it is difficult and it really does show you how good Kimmel is on his feet in that mm. moment. Yeah. But the appearance really is something to behold. And I, I know that you want to stay in the moment and not, you know, be too retrospective from mm. a 2023 20, perspective. But I'm just curious, like, what do you see when you watch that? Because I, I really see somebody who does not know how to be in a moment like that. And, yeah. you know, and they it aired, right? Yeah, it did. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because if you, you watch it 
as I've said, a lot of people watch it. It's funny and it romps along, but that's Kimmel, isn't it? That He's doing all the work there because right. he's just, you know, as Brad kind of takes us through it, when you get this really bizarre off the wall comment from Kai, he manages to flip it into a joke at you know, Kimmel does it at his own expense. No. <laughs> no, no, he, he's, a, he's a fat, rich white guy. Now, um, you, uh, you, obviously, millions of people have seen this video no, on the... fat, rich people. No, fat, white people. Yeah. Yes, I'm, you're sitting next to one. Um, it's funny, he gets a laugh, and then he moves on to the next thing. And it's kind of brilliant. And so you kind of feel like, well, that was great, that was a great chat. And apparently, in the green room afterwards, everyone was just, yeah, Kai was great. And yet... You unpick that and you look at it, it's messy, isn't it? Mm. It's like somebody who's not really at that point, it seems like he's not really engaging with what he's being asked. He's not right. He's not reading the audience. He's not knowing what well, doesn't feel like he's understanding what's expected of him. Right. It's really off the rails in many ways. Totally. And it's there's sort of no kind of impulse control about it. You know, and I suppose what everyone was celebrating him for was the fact that he didn't fit within everyone's expected rules. He didn't do what was expected of him. So that's great on the one hand, but then we're only getting bite-sized moments with Kai in the media or everyone's sort of having a selfie with him or having their moment, hey, I caught up with Kai. It's just long enough that it doesn't matter what Kai does to an extent. You've got the selfie, you've got the anecdote, and then you move on with the rest of your life and it doesn't matter where he's gone, I think. With that, it was like long enough to get a section with Kai that thought that was quite funny. But then as you saw, they thought, well, let's do something with him and do these movie reviews and it was I mean total chaos mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like this is not going to go anywhere yeah yeah well the, then there is this fork in the road which I was like was there really a fork in the road where he's either going to sign a contract or go smoke a bunch of pot in San Francisco and I thought yeah. you know has anyone ever negotiated a deal by spinning a pencil like <laughs> yeah <laughs> maybe not right should. have you <laughs> I do now yeah <laughs> That's your new method, right? Yeah. <laughs> I know it's weird that, isn't it? Because it makes for a lovely moment because it's so bizarre. You know, you you think, well, I suppose collectively everyone thought they're offering him something that, that he'd want. Go and be rich and famous. But he's uh, he's not really, I, I don't think, kind of really engaging with what, what's on offer. But secondly, you could also look at it that that's a moment of intense stress, isn't it? And it's sort of do I want suddenly a changed life with all these rules and stuff on me that he doesn't really necessarily kind of want or understand? I don't know. It's, you, you know, you could see it as a, sort of, as a stress response practically. It's like, no, actually, hang on. I'm going to go to the Bay Area. I'm going to go surfing and smoke weed. So Kai does try to walk away from fame somewhat, but, you know, even an unhoused skateboarder, he can't stay below the radar once he's become a meme and, you know, everyone on the internet knows who he is. But I did find myself wondering if he could have faded away into obscurity, you know, whether his life would have been different, whether what ultimately happens to him wouldn't have happened. I mean, did did you find yourself wondering that? Because it's everywhere he went, people like sought him out, you know, and he kept kind of getting pulled back into these situations where it just seemed like he couldn't just be. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. No, I think that uh, we thought about it such a lot. I mean, I think it's the absolute crux of the whole film, isn't it? It's, yeah, who knows where he'd have been? I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing that happened to him that day that happened to get caught on camera, but he would probably, who knows, be still kind of drifting around. But even though he didn't ask to be famous, it 
obviously had a massive impact on him. I mean, for a while, he doesn't even seem to know that he's famous because no one can track him down and then he, until he posts and he's sleeping um, in a field by a garage somewhere. He then sort of seems to quite like it. But I think what more importantly what happens, and, and, and more sadly in a way, is that every kind of wild and crazy idea that he might throw out there, that he might have thrown out there before, where perhaps no one was really listening, now everyone's listening. And now he can say wild and extreme things and everyone hangs on his every word. And I think also he'd made a big play of describing how he'd thwarted that, you know, the, the driver who was trying to attack somebody by smashing him in the head. And everyone went, yeah, that's a really good thing to do. They didn't question, was that a bit violent? You know, why did you have a hatchet and why were you so ready to use it? Was that necessary? So you could look at it as well that it's a sorry tale of him being validated for this, yeah, actually quite violent behavior. And then, of course, he adds to the story and says that he gave McBride a a joint laced with PCP before that happened. He adds a whole new layer to it. And I didn't know what to make of that when all of a sudden that gets added to the story. Did, Did you know what to make of that? No, it's extraordinary that, isn't it? And especially because, obviously, we sort of looked into that and um, they did do toxicology tests on the weed. There was a bag found in the car because, um, you know, that the, we went to look at the car, actually. It was, it was still there and the police pound. So they did test it and they didn't find anything else apart from the marijuana. But then I guess what's interesting is why he's boasting about the fact that he did lace it, whether he did or not. Right. And the fact that it's yet another one of those things where a lot of what he says either doesn't add up or it's inconsistent or it changes in time. He, he doesn't seem to sort of almost, if it's fair to say, he doesn't take responsibility for what he's saying, but it's just, he just throws it out there and everyone goes, yeah, great. And it, was, it, it was just that, I mean, we did that great interview with the musician that happened to overhear that when Kai was telling everyone that he laced the joint. And he's telling a group of people and they're all laughing. And no one's really listening to what he's saying. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I just confessed something huge. He drugged this guy? That's like starting a fire and then putting the fire out and being called a hero. It was a sort of one person that was standing slightly outside of that thinking, hang on, that doesn't sound right. Yeah. I was also thinking, like, maybe he thought it was true. You know what I mean? Because yeah. this is somebody who, there was a video someone took approaching him and the first thing he does is ask him for a bottle. And that's a, a normal interaction for Kai. But most people who would do that would not be then being filmed and posted on the internet doing it. Like his life is so amplified. Um, and, you know, the fact that he's telling tall tales, that might be something he does all the time. But People aren't usually paying attention to people who do that to the extent that they're paying attention to Kai. Uh, that, that's what I found myself thinking. Um, it was just, it was really fascinating. Um, so we do learn that Kai is actually Caleb McGilvery yeah. from Edmonton, Alberta. And you talked to two members of his family that told somewhat different stories. There was his cousin, Jeremy, who it seemed to me somewhat backed up Caleb's stories about growing up uh, in a difficult and abusive home. And then his mother, Shirley, who said the issue was that Kai was an uncontrollable child. They had a lot of difficulties with him and he had a lot of issues. Between the two stories, do you think the truth lies with one or the other or somewhere in the middle? Oh, that's really, it's so hard to say, isn't it? And I guess it's not really our job to even kind of go there. It was more that, you know, it's like the camera guy that hung out with him and Jessup when he was doing that sort of more in-depth interview said, 
you know, you have a kind of truthometer when you listen to um, what contributors say when you're interviewing them. And, and he was saying that it's quite hard to tell how much of this do I think is true as he's listening to him and he's recording it. But he said even if only 50% is true, he had a really horrible childhood. Obviously, we wanted to go to his family and find out, especially because he'd said in that first viral interview when he was asked where he's from and, you know, all about his family, he said, um, I don't have a family, you know, as far as anyone who's concerned who I grew up with, I'm already dead. So he says these sort of strange and sad things about them. So I thought Jeremy the cousin was quite amazing because there's a real sort of tenderness there. It's very sweet, isn't it? He's sort of, mm. you know, he was saying I practically grew up with, well, I did grow up with him. He's like my brother. And he's obviously incredibly fond of him and then saddened by that viral interview. But when it comes to a certain situation of pressure, you either become a diamond or you get crushed. And in this case, Caleb gets crushed. By this point in the film, you're quite far down and you're obviously now starting to see that somebody else in Edmonton, Canada, was watching that viral video with a completely different take on how that came across. You know, somebody that really knows him and grew up with him is not thinking, oh, isn't this great? You know, his guy and he smashed the guy over the head and he saved the day. He's thinking, this is terribly, terribly sad. I thought that was really, really amazing to hear. But... um. Also, he does, you're right, he does write about his mother, he writes about being locked up. And I just think it was, you know, we just really wanted to hear from her. I didn't ever lock him in a room, like lock him in a room. Um, I had to put, uh, uh, for a short period of time, uh, uh, the ability, uh, stop the ability of him getting out of the room too early because he was a free spirit and would get up earlier than I did and get into stuff that could harm him. It's quite stressful, isn't it, to be put in that position, I guess. It's very difficult. And she's, she had talked before to the press and she talked about how, you know, her reaction to some of the more extreme things he said. She said, well, you know, he, he does have the kind of like mood swing. She's never sort of put a label on it. I was, I was surprised, actually, at her candor, or her, you know, and I'm wondering, you know, is she a reliable narrator? I mean, it's a difficult position, certainly, that she's in, but she is talking which also is in some ways surprising. So do you have an opinion about whether or not she's a reliable narrator, being that she obviously has a perspective here? Yeah, she does. well, she obviously does have a perspective. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because if you think about the position she's in, it's, it's kind of heart-wrenching. It's incredibly yeah. sad. And her son, you know, like she said at the end, she said, I might not see him again. That is incredibly stressful and upsetting. And you're right, there's a sort of, her demeanour is quite inscrutable. But... It's funny, isn't it? Because I think when you go out and make these films and you're talking to somebody about something in, like incredibly emotionally raw, I think there's often a tendency that if people cry. It's like, oh, well, you've got to the heart of it. And actually, I'm increasingly thinking it's, it's often more interesting when they remain aloof and what you're looking at are the defences around them, the kind of mm. the guard they put up, Kind of, I think kind of necessarily. I mean, wouldn't you? Yeah. I mean, I have to tell you, I was watching it and I was like, that's also the way I might behave if it were completely true. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is something that she's lived with for, for a long time. She's reconciled with it. And this is the her truth, too. And a her, what if, if what she says is true, it could look very different from outside the house. Mm -hmm. that's, how, that's what I kept thinking as well. You know, it's just very, very hard to know what goes on inside of a family. Um, oh, absolutely. And I think she does... You know, and it's important she does speak for him as well, even mm. though she's in that very difficult position of coming off the back of him saying these awful things and putting yep. him, laying it at her door. She yep. still manages, you know, she still speaks for his vulnerability and, you know, and 
and worrying that perhaps he's too trusting and that people might take advantage of him. And um, I mean, that's it's important to hear from her, I think. Yeah. So the final chapter of Kai's story takes place in New Jersey, and somehow he crosses paths with attorney Joseph Galfi. Mm-hmm. What do we know about their encounter? Yeah, interesting. Not a lot, because um, the only people that know are um, Kai and Joseph Galfi, and mm. obviously one's dead. And I don't think we'll probably ever really know. We felt he was dangerous. I mean, here's a man who was, uh, he attacked someone in California with a hatchet. He didn't know that driver more than a few hours, and he attacked him. And he was roaming around our area somewhere, and we thought he was an extremely dangerous character, so we advised the public of that. You know, they've got a clear picture of when and where Kai was, um, and they managed to sort of track that whole thing quite clearly. But we don't really know about the nature of how they met. I mean, it was apparently in or near Times Square, I, I guess we're sort of all left wondering, you know, is it is it just a bed for the night? Is Joseph Galfi doing a kind avuncular thing and looking after somebody who looks a bit lost? I think his words to him were, you look a bit lost to start off with, apparently. But again, we don't know. Mm. It was really interesting to me. I mean, Kai is trying to make this point of like, if things were reversed, you know, this is a thing. Are, are you, can I, I'm supposed to be able to defend myself. But there was this weakness in the defense, which you hear... In other defenses, uh, too, as, you know, sometimes considered a strength of a defense, but all mostly considered a weakness in a defense, the leaving and coming back the following day shows mm-hmm. premeditation. And that is the primary weakness in his defense, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the videotape, it's, 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 it's a difficult case and it's a complicated case. And I found myself thinking it's going to be impossible to know the truth here. And that's probably yeah. the position you found yourself in as a filmmaker. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And how, how, can you, yeah, how can you possibly get to the absolute truth of that? I, don't think, I, really, I really don't think we ever will. But yeah. it's also the timeline. It was a reasonably short time that he went back for on the Sunday. And in that time, they had supper. He was supposed to have, you know, according to his version, he had been drugged. He fell asleep. He woke up. He was out of there within a couple of hours. You know, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier, it really is hard to believe this whole thing happened within three months. It Mm. really is. This is a cross-country journey, too. And this is somebody without means. And it's it's really astonishing to sort of see him in this very sunny place with this hair and this visage of, you know, white teeth and sunshine with this reporter and in these glamorous places and then looking completely different on the East Coast in this very kind of bleak video. It is amazing to me how condensed this timeline is. Were you surprised uh, how condensed the timeline was? Totally. And also when trying to piece together his movements, because you you can follow quite a lot of it because he's kind of sofa hopping with people all through Northern California. There's a there's a gap. He turns up in New York, but how he got there it really isn't clear because he didn't have a passport. He couldn't fly. You know, he had no means of getting there other than, well, we assume, hitchhiking. He had a bit of money. Somebody had done a benefit concert for him to get him some money, but not much. You know, the best we can guess is it was a series of lifts that got him over there. I think he'd been in New York about a month before he was arrested. Yeah. So I just have a you know procedural question for you because it's something that I think that, you know, I've dealt with too as a journalist and I, I'd love for you to talk about it if you can because, you know, regarding his legal case, your film can't go into too much detail. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit why it's not simple to include details of legal proceedings in documentaries. Yeah. Oh, I'm starting to sweat. Yeah. <laughs> it is so, so fraught. You know, and I'm sure you can imagine because you've done this, it's, um, we obviously had lawyers 
pouring over every little yeah. detail. Yeah. And yeah. we're just putting out there what's fair and accurate and it's a constant judgment of that. So that's why we put that card at the end to say, you know, he continues to appeal, which he does. And he, he has done one appeal in 2021, which was rejected. It's been reported that he's still appealing, that he's working on his case. I mean, he's very clever and I, we hear he's studying, you know, he's, he's reading all the books. I think probably a lot of prisoners do. The, the library books, you know, on law must go quite quickly. I don't know. But yeah, he's, he's still working on it. And it feels like a complicated question. I mean, I know how I feel about the criminal justice system and mental health issues colliding. And it is a clearly Kai has some mental health issues. I don't think anybody can deny that. We're not obviously doctors. We can't mm. diagnose him. But it's a complicated question as to whether prison is where someone like Kai belongs. I mean, it is to me. Totally. Yeah, I completely agree. It's so sad, isn't it? I mean, I went to get some shots of Trenton Prison when I was over there and standing outside getting the, you know, the usual shots of the barbed wire and looking up, it just sort of strikes you, you know, he's, he's been given 57 years and this is a kid who was in and out of the system a bit. I mean, he was in, um, you know, he's in Bosco homes for a while, but you know, come, I think 18, that's it. You're out, you're on your own and homeless. And, you know, there are, um, I think it's something like half a million homeless people or something of which, I mean, who knows, but statistically, I think they reckon it's something like, I mean, this is in America, they think it's something like kind of 60% have got lifelong mental health issues. You know, not many means of treating that. So, I mean, I can't speak for Kai because I just don't know, but um, certainly we wanted to put that question out there, I think, you mm. know, through our, our interviewees, everyone was wondering that. Could it have been different had he had some, some form of attention treatment at an early age? It's a really yeah. tricky one, isn't it? Because it's just, it, it's so shocking to stand outside a prison and think somebody might be in there for that long yeah. and think that, and suffering, you know, it's just it's awful. And, and you ask, could it have been different? Because so many people were watching his life, you know, and there were so many signs that there was violent tendencies there. I mean, his social media posts about rapists, his comments to reporters about using violence. And let's not forget, he did attack a man <laughs> with a hatchet in broad daylight. And those warning signs were ignored because mm -hmm. he was charming and charismatic, right? Yeah, and because I think because everything is a little instant with him, everyone gets a, a moment with him and then he's gone. It's not like you're really looking at a pattern necessarily, but actually from piecing this all together, a clear pattern does emerge that that he talks a lot about, you know, kind of fighting for the underdog. That's part of his whole free spirit, so that's not a surprise. But, but there's often a, a thing about when he perceives injustice, he, that's when he often talks about, confronting it head on, but violently, you know, mm. I mean, and he did that in that first video when, when Jessup said to him, if it's anything like this ever happened to you before, and he shows him his, yeah, look at these teeth marks from when somebody was beating up a woman. So I smashed him in the face. He was talking like that from the beginning, but it's, it is interesting when you plot it out and think, yeah, it sounds like there's a sort of trigger thing going on. And what, we can never know is was something said or did he perceive something or did something happen to him that w that was like a trigger when he was there um, at Joseph Galfi's house and that you know however we we just don't know but however small whatever it was it didn't take much necessarily to put him into a violent rage it seems. Well, 
Well, final question for you, because at the end of your film, you do give everyone a chance to say what they think the moral of the story is. So I'm wondering, um, what do you believe the moral of this story oh, is? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's tricky. And in a way, yeah, that's... It's what I kind of like about the fact that we put that to them to say. But I think if there's, you know. I think what Bob's saying is if you're going to glorify someone, you better know who you're glorifying. I can sit here and say I did everything the right way and tried to, tried to do everything for him and have him be successful and happy and, I don't know, expose the good in him and hide the bad. And I just couldn't, I guess. But I do think, you know, if there's something that you take away from it, it's, I think it's really problematic that we make, you know, we, be, I said collective we, it's like social media, but also the, the media and entertainment business, and we're part of that. I think that um, it's problematic when you make people celebrated overnight like that without really questioning, you know, what's behind it. So, you know, we might celebrate for something that, that, like that first act when he smashes the guy over the head with a hatchet. I mean, Ordinarily, we might be horrified by that or at least question it. And instead, we're not looking at the consequences. You know, we're consuming a little kind of bite-sized chunk of, of him. We're going to, you know, it, he's a homeless hitchhiker that if you didn't see him as a famous celebrity on the internet, some people might walk away. You might pick him up as a hitchhiker, but you wouldn't necessarily invite him back for a sleepover. There is a kind of collective sort of feeling of safety because he was famous. And yet, without really stopping to think about the consequences in the real world. You know, that's a real person. He's not an avatar or a meme or a cartoon character, but I think we sort of wanted to make him one. Hmm. Well, Colette, you really have made a super interesting film. I think people are going to be talking about it for a long time. Thank you for talking to me about the hatchet-wielding hitchhiker. I really appreciate it. No, thank you so much. It's good to talk to you. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks so much again to director Colette Camden. For more of my takes, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, films, podcasts, TV shows, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. And make sure to follow the show to stay tuned for all new episodes. Our music is by Kelly Mack at Netflix Music Lab. You Can't Make This Up as a production of Netflix. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening. 